Good morning, everybody. We're uh, going to go ahead and get started for what uh, it looks like it's going to be our last day of the uh, Revelation study. So it's been uh, an uh, interesting uh, two-year course through the book of Revelation, and I think we're going to get to kind of close it out here today. So let's open a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with the study, and uh, and we will look at uh, at chapter 22 uh, today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just, uh, it's such a beautiful morning. It's been a beautiful weekend. Thank you for the much needed rain. Uh, Lord, we just pray now that you would uh, just bless our time here this morning, bless our study, uh, bless all the classes that are meeting now and the service to follow, uh, and then bless our uh, time at the banquet uh, this evening, Lord. We just pray that in all these things you would be glorified, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to close out the last few verses we had in Revelation 21. We, we covered pretty much the entire chapter last week, but uh, we did not uh, talk about verses 24 through 27, so we'll do that today. Let me begin by reading those. Uh, it says, the nations will walk by its light. And this is talking about uh, the new Jerusalem and, and essentially the, etern the eternal order of things. And, and, and it says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates be, ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is talking about, uh, you know, remember there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, okay? They, they have all been, been, you know, made new. Everything has been made new. So there will be life going on in the new earth. Uh, but there will also be the, the you know, the, the, the new Jerusalem, essentially uh, the capital of, of God's eternal order. Um, and it says the, 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 the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it and, and uh, you know, the nations will come into it. So what exactly does that mean, the kings and the nations? Uh, you know, we tend to think of, of, of heaven in a very different way than this. But evidently there will still be life going on. There will be nations there will be leaders there uh um you know it, it will be a much different uh eternal existence than what we tend to always think um let me uh, read something to you actually a, a couple of different things uh from from kind of the two commentaries that i used the most in regards uh to revelation that's the new american commentary and, and the baker exegetical commentary and just their, their you know, the comments on this section. First, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, New American Commentary. It says, Revelation 22 is a continuation, uh, uh, or excuse me, I, I jumped ahead. Um, but let me, I'll go ahead and read this. Revelation 22 is, is a continuation of, uh, in the first six verses of the vision of the New Jerusalem in chapter 21. The emphasis shifts from the provisions made for the perpetual bless to, uh, for the perpetual blessings of God uh, on those who follow the Lord. These blessings include regaining access to the tree of life, permanent healing, and dispelling all darkness. This is followed by a, a testimony from John concerning the rationale for for penning the apocalypse. Uh, finally, the concluding paragraphs contain various admonitions, promises, and warnings uh, to provide the reader with the appropriate conclusion to the prophecy. Um, let me uh, kind of read to you the Baker, uh, actually, uh, now, I'm, I'm at the, I got the part I want here. It says, um, verse 26, John does record that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the city. Verse 27 promises that nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor shall anyone who is shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The statement that the nations shall bring their glory into the city is enigmatic. 
And if, is this a reference to the governments existing during the millennial kingdom? And there are some that, that essentially believe that this is a reference back to the millennial kingdom. Others look at it and say, no, this is talking about, you know, this is all talking about the eternal order. Uh, you know, some look at it, and I think this is probably true, that remember, the millennial kingdom has just ended. Satan had his brief rebellion. That was destroyed, uh, and, and the judgment took place, and, and Christ has handed kind of the, the keys of the kingdom over to God the Father, uh, and then it, it, you know, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem are all kind of made and introduced, uh, and, and then you go right into the eternal order. There's not like some kind of giant long gap in, in between here. So in many ways, you know, I think a lot of people believe that the, the kingdoms and everything that existed on the earth during the millennial kingdom, once kind of the old earth is destroyed and made new, those things will all still exist. You know, and so that's, that's the view of a lot of, uh, a lot of, of people. It, it says, um, so he's asking, is this a reference to the governments existing during the millennial kingdom, which are now said to bring their glory into the city? Or does this take into consideration the economy of the new heavens and the new earth? The latter seem to be the better estimate. By now, even the millennial earth has perished with fervent heat, and the new heavens and new earth are in place. The popular understanding of the eternal state has been detrimental to the cause of Christianity. Expressions improperly understood, such as it is a place of rest, drum up uh, for most people the idea of an eternal siesta. People seem to picture in the mind's eye glorified saints as cloud potatoes, strumming their harps of gold and simply lounging for eternity. Now let me ask you a question. Isn't kind of that what you think a lot of times when you think of heaven? We're just kind of floating around out there. God's answering all the questions that we're throwing at him. Isn't that how we think? But that's all kind of nonsense. That's not something scripture ever really says. You know, when we talk about it being a place of rest and things like that, we misinterpret that as like we're just going to kind of snooze for eternity. But, but you know, that's really not the picture that's painted you know, in, in, the, in the Bible. Um, let me continue continue reading here. He says, first, um, well, he says, actually, all the expressions uh, of the eternal state are quite different. First, the eternal prospect of enriching and triumphant worship that can only distantly, uh, only be distantly anticipated in the present state is a constant activity of the eternal state. Second, Jesus has promised he who is faithful with a few things, he will put in charge of many things. Every expression of the eternal state is one of intense activity minus the problems of illness and weariness, which due to, the sin, due to sin prevent full accomplishment and enjoyment of work. In the eternal state, there will, there will apparently be endless uh, learning and extensive assignments. The probable interpretation that those of responsibility throughout the cosmos bring all of the glory of the expanse of the new heavens and the new earth into the glorious city. Anything that is defiled or deceitful does not enter the city, but only those whose names have been inscribed uh, in, in the Lamb's book of life. The perfect passive participle shows that this has been done with permanent effects. Those who have overcome all the powers of evil by the blood of the Lamb have their names permanently written in the Lamb's book of life and therefore gain access forever to the holy city. So in other words, there's not going to be any evil and that's what it's talking about when it says, you know, nothing that is, is vile or anything enters in. It's, it's going to be a perfect state, but heaven will probably not be the way we think of it. It's not going to just be, we're going to do nothing but sing or like float on clouds. There will be, an, you know, beautiful, intense worship. That is very clear, but it also seems from a lot, you know, all the different kind of passages in the Bible dealing with, you know, with the eternal order of things, there will be activity there will be life things will in some way carry on but will carry on perfectly the way god always intended for things to be remember in many ways what we're seeing here is return to eden what was always meant to happen that god will live with his people his people will worship him worship him perfectly and, and, and will, will carry on 
uh, you know, life as God, you know, anticipated it to be, expected it to be. Now, obviously, God knew sin would take place, uh, but he also knew that this day would come when he would bring it all about, you know, back to what it was supposed to be. You know, and so when it's talking about the, you know, the, 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 the king's of the earth entering into, you know, in, into it. Um, you know, it's an amazing thing to think about. Where the nations will walk by its sight, the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And then he, he says the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. There will still be kings and nations and life, and people will flow in and out of God's holy city, his capital city, uh, and, and we don't know what that will all look like. Uh, my guess is we're probably all going to have an assignment in some way in eternity, but yet we will have the full capacity uh, to handle it. We will never grow tired. Uh, you know, we will always be able to accomplish every task perfectly because sin will no longer ever be an issue. So we don't know what that's going to look like, but it's probably going to look very differently than what we've always imagined it, okay? Um. Let's, let's go over now to chapter 22, and I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 6, uh, and then we'll kind of, uh, you know, talk a little bit about that. It says, then the angel showed me the river of, wa- of the water of life as, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the, uh, of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the, in, in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will, uh, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for, God, uh, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign uh, forever and ever. And then verse 6, the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. All right, again, again, I want to begin by reading something from uh, the Baker exegetical commentary uh, just to kind of get us started here. Find my place. Is the purpose of God in the first Garden of Eden, and this is connecting everything back to that whole idea of a new Eden. And Every commentator I, I've, I've read all points to this. Like this, it seems to be almost universally agreed upon. That what you see happening here is kind of a, a movement back to Eden in, in many ways. Now, not the same Eden, you know, but a, a, a new Eden, kind of the way things, are, you know, were, were meant to be. So the pers- purpose of God for the, the first Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3 was to provide a garden of delight which is the meaning of Eden, okay? It means garden of delight. As part of his covenant with humankind, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden not only to enjoy it, but to take care of it as their service to God. In a sense, tilling the, the garden was, a, was an act of worship. At the same time, their whole existence was oriented to God. This is why they could, they could partake of the tree of life, but not the tree of, of knowledge. To do so was to replace dependence on God with dependence on self and one's own knowledge. When they partook of it, they lost their place in paradise, which is the term that the Septuagint uses for Eden, and were thrust out into the world of death. To the Jews, this Edenic paradise was then taken up to heaven to await the faithful. Here in Revelation, it has once more come down to join the renewed earth and is now part of the eternal city. Eden uh, has not only been restored, but has been uh, elevated and expanded for the people of God in eternity. So just, you know, talking about the, the sense that, that these following verses are essentially painting a picture of a new Eden. 
uh, you know, that, that the old Eden was, was in, in the mind, and he, he actually, you know, gives reference for several uh, Jewish writings, some canonical writings and some outside of the canon uh, that refer to Eden being taken up to God, uh, you know, removed from the earth, essentially. Uh, now, again, we don't know if that's necessarily true, but what that shows is that's the view that a lot of Jews had of Eden, of what happened to Eden after the fall, that essentially God removed it from the earth, uh, and, and that it would come back again someday, you know, and, and so that seems to be kind of the picture that is being built upon here. Now, let's take a look at these first you know, the, the, these first six verses, you're going to notice a lot of references that seem, again, very close to, to Eden, you know, talking about the tree of life and how a river, you know, flowed. You remember in, in Eden, a river flowed through Eden, okay? And, and, and so you're going to see, you know, similar things to that, and we'll talk about each of those things kind of as, as we go. But it says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, let's talk about the river first. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a couple interesting things here. W one, that this, this river is flowing through, uh, you know, through the New Jerusalem, just like a, a river flowed through Eden. And like I said, I'm going to read something about that here uh, in a minute. Also, it's interesting that it's flowing down the middle of the street, and we'll also discuss that here in, in a minute. But that's, that's one of the first things, like when I, re, you know, every time I read this, that's one of the first things that rests my mind. I try to picture it. You know, this is the same street, the street of gold. That's what this is. And there's a river flowing down through the middle of the street, which just seems odd. You know, when you first, it, it kind of just like grabs hold of your mind when you, when you first think of that. Um, there is some, a, a bit of, um, I guess you would call it controversy, I don't know if it's necessarily controversy, it's just a, a bit of interpretive issue with what exactly that means to be flowing down through the middle of, of the street, and, and I'll, you know, read something about that here, um, again from Grant Osborne's uh, commentary. He says, uh, the great river of life, in chapter 22, verse 2, will flow down the center of the street. This is certainly the great street of chapter 21, verse 21, that is constructed of pure gold like transparent glass. Thus, it is the main thoroughfare of the New Jerusalem. The problem is that one can construe this two ways. If it is connected uh, with, with chapter 22, verse 1, in other words, the first verse of, the, uh, of, of the, that chapter, it means the river flows down the center of the street of the celestial city. And that's how it's translated in the NIV and the New American Standard. Uh, if any of you have the, the NLT or the New Revised Standard uh, or New Revised Version, they all translate it that way, okay? He goes on to say, however,
you know, just a, a, a word just briefly about the, the river. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we had seen a river, you know, flowing kind of into and out of Eden. It, you know, kind of a meeting of four rivers that kind of came together and flowed through Eden. You know, there's, there's almost that, you know, th- there was the river there, and it was, it was obviously important to Eden. It, gar- it watered the garden, but it also flowed out. It was also a part of the, of the, the larger world around Eden. And, and this is one of the false ideas that we have of Eden. A lot of times when we think of Eden, we think the whole world was Eden. The Bible never says that. In fact, it says very much the opposite. That God planted a garden in the world, and that was Eden. And that was Adam and Eve's place. You know, that was the place that God met them and had this relationship with them. That was kind of center to, you know, to their worship of God. Uh, As he had mentioned there earlier, everything was oriented to God. You know, and, and the river flowed, you know, into and out of Eden. Well, this, everything, it is all there. It is flowing from God himself, from from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb, and it is in the new Eden. It is in the new Jerusalem. That that is its place. You know, and so again, at the heart of everything is the life that this river gives, and there is no kind of outside world. You know, we always think that way. I mean, even think, think of how we think as Christians. You know, we think of the world here amongst us and then the world outside of us. And we're told to be ambassadors to that world, be light to that world. But we always think of that sense of there is that other world. No other world exists at this point. Yes, hell exists in its place, but it is not a part of this world of God here. Everything is connected, and the river is in it and flows from it and gives life to it, you know, and so there, that, that idea that, you know, we are here and, and they are out there, that, that does not exist anymore, and I, I think that's kind of a pretty beautiful thing, you know, it, it's the idea of God with his people permanently, and, and, and this is our eternal state. Uh, us with God. Now, that, that brings about kind of the next thing here is it says it flows from God and from the Lamb. And the biggest stress there is essentially the joint rule of both God and the Lamb. Again, we are very often conditioned, uh, you know, biblically because we see kind of Christ giving God the, ki- the kingdom, like after the millennial kingdom. But also, many verses in the Bible kind of point to, like, like the ruling of the Godhead together. You know, that, that they, we forget, kind of, that they are all one. You know, there's one God, not many. You know, not two, not three, but one. He exists eternally as three persons, but is still one God. And here we have the idea of, of, of both uh, Christ, the Lamb, and God the Father ruling jointly, uh, you know, in, in this, this kingdom. Let me, let me read again something to, to you here from, from Dr. Osborne. Uh, he, he says, in chapter 3, uh, verse 21, Christ says, I overcame and sat down with my Father on, on, on his throne. In chapter 4, verse 2, God sits on the throne. In chapter 5, verse 6, the Lamb is standing at the center of the throne. Also in chapter 17, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 17, you get the picture that on and off throughout the entire book of Revelation, you see God on the throne, Christ on the throne, God on the throne, Christ on the throne. I mean, you see an, an interchangeable uh, idea. He said in chapter 6 through 21, God is on the throne. But now we return to the theme that the throne belongs equally to God and the Lamb, as also in chapter 22, verse 3, where the throne of God and the throne of... Uh, uh, and, and the lamb is in the city. A uh, throne occurs 45 times in the book. Three-fourths of the New Testament occurrences. So just let that sink in. 45 times the, the word throne appears in the book of Revelation. 60 times basically total in the entire Bible. So three-fourths of them are in this book alone. 
all right? That, that's how that theme of the throne of God is stressed in the book of Revelation. It is one of the central motifs symbolizing the sovereign rule of God as judge of the world and protector of his people. In one sense, at eschaton, at the return of Christ, uh, Christ will hand over the, the, the kingdom of, uh, to God the Father. But in another sense, they will be co-regions throughout eternity as here. These are not contradictory, but supplementary. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the turning over of the kingdom of God occurs when he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, an event that takes place prior to this uh, you know, it takes place at the, the second coming of Christ. At that time, God will make Christ co-regent with himself, a position he will hold for all eternity. Thus, it is the spiritual kingdom inaugurated by Christ at his first advent that is given over to God, and in the eternal kingdom, both will reign forever. You know, so again, it, it's, it's a neat picture. It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of, of God the Father and God the Son uh, reigning uh, together for eternity, and, and, and the river of life flowing through, uh, through the new Jerusalem from both of their thrones. You know, their thrones, uh, you know, the idea of, the, of their thrones being beside one another. Uh, you know, it, what did Jesus say? You know, he went back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Uh, and so the, their thrones sitting beside one another and the river flo flowing out from both of their thrones. Life flowing out from both of their thrones. Uh, so a beautiful uh, picture here that, that, that we see. Um, the tree or the trees of life. Some of you may have multiple trees, trees of life. Uh, some of you may have a tree of life. Again, let me, uh, let me kind of read something to you about that. It says in Genesis 3, 22, the tree is the source of eternal life. So Adam and Eve must be banished from the garden lest they find immortality in the midst of their sin. Since, the, since tree is singular, there is, uh, there is some question as to whether it is a single tree, as in Genesis 3, on the bank of the river. And, there, and he gives some examples of some people who, who believe that. But it's better to take it as a collective singular. And he gives Again, examples, actually far more people take that position than take the single tree, okay? The more popular position is that this is multiple trees. Um, referring to many trees lining both banks of the river. Uh, and he goes on to kind of a complicated explanation of the Greek that I'm not going to get into. Uh, this fits the imagery of Ezekiel 47.12, where the temple stream uh, has fruits fruit trees of all kinds growing on both banks of the river. As Block notes, Ezekiel alludes to the Eden imagery of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where the trees remain perpetually green and provide an endless supply of food. Thus, the single tree of, of Genesis 2, 9 has become multiple trees of life, and in the final Eden, these trees will line both banks of the river of life as it flows down the middle of the great street of the new jerusalem they will uh the tr these trees will produce 12 kinds of fruit yielding its its fruit every month this goes beyond ezekiel 47 12 where the the, the fruit trees bear fruit uh every month but not 12 different kinds of fruit the mention of 12 kinds certainly alludes to a 12-month calendar and especially to the seasons for growing crops Normally, fruit appears at its proper season, but in the final Eden, there will be no seasons, and abundant fruit will be, the ava will be available every month. And he goes on, uh, as a personal note, he says, an incredible promise to those of us who live for the seasonal fruit crops, which, by the way, I am one. Uh, one of my favorite times of year is about to come when the plums and the peaches hit. Uh, I, I just I can't wait every year for that. And so the, the picture of kind of the new Eden uh, is, is of, and some of you probably have that translated in your Bibles as multiple trees. Some of you, again, have singular, depending on how people, you know, translate the Greek there. Um, but it, it does, there are far more people that go with the multiple trees. That does seem to be the best interpretation, that essentially uh, the street will be lined 
with trees of life. Uh, and they will, you know, in each season, they will produce essentially a different crop. Uh, and, and, and this will happen all throughout the, uh, throughout the year. And, and, you know, you'll, you'll be able to, to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of life, of the different fruits all, all of the time. Uh, so, yeah, again, a beautiful, beautiful picture. Tim, you had a question? You mean, well, he's just talking about the street of the New Jerusalem. This is all just going down the main street of the New Jerusalem. So just picture a street. That, that, that's, that's what this is meant to be. He's not talking about this is what's going to be all over the earth. He's only talking about this is what's in the, in the main street of, of, of the main city. Yeah, the city. Yep. Yep. You're just trying to picture it? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I we're not given any kind of picture other than that. That there's a main street and the main street that flows down it is made of gold, and a river runs through the middle of it, and it's lined with trees of life. You know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I, you know, I I would guess it's probably going to have, you know, dirt and everything just like a normal city would, except everything will be perfect. Yeah. Well, not here, you don't. Yeah. Yep. That's part, of the, that's part of the whole thing of it is that everything in this, even though we're given certain descriptions, it's beyond, it's, it's really beyond our ability to comprehend what this is, you know, and, and we kind of like try to envision it, but it's really hard. I mean, it really is. It, it's very hard to try to envision what we're seeing here. And exactly how this works. And we can't to a certain degree. We just can't. Um, you know, like I said, the best way for me is just envision a city street. And, and it, you know, the street in itself is made of gold. And, you know, it's as clear as, 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 as glass. And there's trees growing along the sides. And somehow there's a river flowing down through the middle of it. Uh, but the main point of all of it is that it is, is life. You know, there, there's vitality here. Um, it it kind of gets to the next part. It says there's no curse. You, you know, it's kind of a declaration that, that, you know, the curse that we knew in the old world, the old life, all the effects it had on everything is gone. There is nothing like that here. In many ways, the curse was defeated at, at the death and, and resurrection of Jesus. But it, was, it is not actualized till right here. You know, Jesus defeated the, the, the curse, but its effects would linger on in our earth. What at this point is the old earth that's been destroyed. You know, the, the effects of it would linger on. And we talked about this before. Remember, the, you know, the, that the Bible says the whole earth is groaning like it's in labor pains waiting for the, you know, the appearance of the sons of God, waiting to essentially till God makes his people what they are supposed to be and makes everything new again. The earth, the Bible says, longs for this moment. And now the earth, the old earth is, is, is eliminated, and now you have a new earth, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, and everything is now perfect. And, and the effects of the curse are now completely gone. You know, what Jesus defeated on the cross with his blood and with his resurrection now is actualized in eternity, that, that, that the curse no longer exists. Look at verse 4. It says, they will see his face and, and, and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, it's that idea of, of, 
us belonging to God, living with God, you know, constantly in his presence. I want, to, I want you to think of the many times um, in the Bible where it's stressed that no one can look at the face of God. You know, that, that one, God is pure spirit, so you, you, know, you can't see him. And if he would reveal himself in some way in all of his glory, none could live. I mean, Moses had the audacity to, to ask God to see him. And, and God's like, Moses, if you saw me, you would die. But I'll show you kind of like a part of me. I'll shield you and, and I'll walk past and you can kind of essentially like see my glory passing. And Moses' hair turned white and he glowed. You know, I mean, that, that no one could look at God. Now what's it say? You'll see God's face. You'll see him face to face. I, I don't even know what that means. I can't even understand that. Because he's still spirit. So, I, you know, I, I mean, that, that just boggles my mind, but somehow, you, you know, we'll be able to perceive God, you know, and, and, and it will be a continual relationship. You know, we will all, everyone who's in this place will be his people. There's that idea of ownership, our name, you know, his name being on our foreheads. We will be his people, he will be our God, we will be together. That is repeated over and over again here, and that has always been the goal for mankind. It, again, it goes back to Eden. You know, that, that, that concept of Adam and Eve being with God, walking with God, communing with God, that was lost because of sin. But now it's regained. You know, in many ways, this is paradise regained. There's no night here, only God's light. There's, there's no need, uh, you know, for for night, or you know, anymore, and, and there's no fear. You know, there's no time where where the gates, you know, will be shut. We found that out in in uh, chapter 21, because you know, in the ancient cities, they would shut the gates, you know, be at nighttime because that's when bandits could come in. That's when you know people who wanted to conquer could come in and invade. But there's no need for that in the new city. It said that they will never shut the gates. No one will ever lock a door. There, there, there'll never be any fear anymore. You know, no, no, no threat any longer. That none of that will exist. You know, and and, and you know, I, I know the idea of no night. That's mind-boggling to us. I mean, I, you know, you think about that. Boy, I mean, we are so tuned to there being night and day, but it says there will be no night anymore. Only the light of God that will constantly kind of light everything. You know, it's a mind-boggling thing to think about. But, but that is what, what we're told here. Actually told several times. You know, I, I think he, he, you know, there's that understanding that this is kind of going to kind of blow our minds. Because notice what he says next in verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I think John was having the same reaction. John's like, what? I, I, I can't wrap my mind around what I'm seeing, what you're telling me. And the angel goes, look, this is true. This is trustworthy. You can put your trust in this. The same God that inspired the prophets who spoke about this so often are now inspiring you, John. You know, this is God's word. This is God's vision. This is true, John. You can trust this. I, I, you know, sometimes I, I like to kind of try to put myself in John's shoes and think of what this would have been like. You know, really a truly mind-blowing experience. Uh, and, and I think John was probably suffering from that very thing. Now, let's look at verses uh, 7 through the end of the, of the chapter. Let me just read them first, and then we'll kind of just go through these, uh, these verses. Uh, it says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard uh, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel 
who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow uh, servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile uh, person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of, this prophe- of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll or pr- of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are, are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. All right, let's look at these, uh, at these verses. First, uh, we see in verse 7, I am, I am, he says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. We see two things here. That Christ says, you know, these events are coming soon. Now, what does that mean to us? Because we are on a much different time scale than God. God's idea of soon and our idea of soon are completely different. You know, in, in, in God's mind, this, this will happen soon. It will happen exactly when it is supposed to happen. Uh, in our mindset, it seems like it has been forever. You know, how can this be soon? But you have to remember, in many ways, you know, from the time Christ is resurrected and then the events that take place at Pentecost and the birth of the church, essentially the, the church from that point on is in its last, last stages. You know, now, that may be thousands of years. You know, we, we're on God's timetable with this but you know there's there's you know essentially the the the, the church you know and and the world is is in its last ages but we don't know how long that will be in god's eyes this will all happen soon it, it will happen you know again exactly when he wants it to from our mindset you know this seems like a very very long time and it may be very much longer yet you know, honestly, I don't think we should try to even put times on things. I hate that. You know, it, it, you know, I've heard that my whole life. I continue to hear that from people. Well, it has to happen soon. What? It's soon in God's time, not soon in ours. It doesn't. I mean, we, you know, God's not relying upon us you know, on what we think the world is like. Yeah, that's always the thing. Well, look at how bad things are. It has to happen anytime, anytime now. It's like, no, it doesn't. The world's always been a bad place ever since the fall. Man, just read a little ancient history. You know, trust me, I'd much rather be living in our world right now than I wouldn't in the world you know, that existed to some of those people. So, you know, hey, just be patient. That's what God tells us to do. Be patient, be about the business of God while you're on this earth. And if it happens during our lifetime, great. If it doesn't, guess what? You'll be in heaven. Don't worry about it. You know, I mean, it's really pretty simple in a lot of ways. So, you know, let's stop trying to predict the time. Let's just do our job. The second thing we see, we see here is he said, a blessing upon those who keep the words of this prophecy. You know, we've mentioned before that, that this is really, you know, the, there's a blessing on, on all of God's word. But it, to my knowledge, this is the only, you know, book of the Bible that offers a specific blessing upon that book itself for those who who study it try to understand it keep the words of that prophecy 
uh, you know, there, there is a particular blessing. Now, we sometimes, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what people are thinking when they're thinking of that blessing. I tend to think it's just the blessing of knowing that God is in control and he is going to, he has everything under control, which is something that we as his people tend to forget all the time. Again, we get caught up in the world around us. We get so affected by, you know, all the terrible things that we see in the world around us and we get all in a big tizzy over it. And our faith starts to slip. We forget that God's the one that's in control of all this. No matter how bad it is, it ain't going to be as bad as the stuff we've described here. And yet, who's in control of all of this? God is. So I think that's really the, the kind of the blessing that is probably being talked about here. Look, if you really study this and you keep this in your heart, you know I'm in control, God says. So relax. You know, be about the business of, of, of God's kingdom but let him take care of the details. Just relax. Put your faith in God. Look at verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who saw these things, and when I heard them, he, you know, he, he, he falls down, he worships. I'll, I'll just basically summarize, just to move a little quicker here. You know, John commits the same stupid thing he's done, like, what, four times now during the book? He gets so caught up in what he sees, you know, and, and an angel's there beside him, which would probably knock every one of us to the ground, just very thought of that. But this angel's there beside him, and he's showing John these things, and John falls down and starts to worship, and the angel's like, stop that. You know, it, 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 you'd think John would have kind of picked up on this by now. You know, he keeps making this same mistake. And, and, and the, you know, angels like, look, worship God. I'm just a servant like you. Like all the prophets, like, you know, like, I'm like all you guys. I'm just a servant of God. You know, you worship God. So again, we see that John is not above the same dumb things that, honestly, we would probably all do. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. And this is one of the most enigmatic verses in, 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 in this chapter, certainly, probably in the, whole, in, in the whole book. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. What is being talked about here? Well, let's deal with, with 10 first. He says, Don't, you know, nobody seal up the, the words of the, the prophecy of this scroll. scroll. God is trying to say that the, the words of this prophecy are important. He has an important message here. That he's, and again, I think it really, you know, a lot of it, for God's people, the message is God is in control. That's really at the heart of this all. That, that God is saying, look, I will bring this world to an end. All the evil you see, all, all the times where, where you see his people asking God, how long will it be? And what's God's answer? a little longer. When everything is exactly the way I want it, then I will do it. But the whole point all the time is relax, trust in me, do your job that I gave you, I'm in control. And when it, the right time comes, I will make it happen. Now, there, there's also a message here to the lost. And the message to the lost is you better get saved. I mean, really, that's the message to the lost. Look at what's going to happen if you continue to reject Christ. You know, there is an eternity of separation from God for those people. And so he says, nobody seal up the message of this. This is important. God is in control, and you better come to Christ. Because you don't know how much time you have, and there's no second chances. You know, so, so nobody seal that up. Now, 11, what does he mean when he says that, you know, people are essentially to remain in the same state that they are in? Uh, and, and again, this, this is a little jarring when we first read this. Well, you know, wouldn't he want all those people to change? But that's really not the, the point here. Let me read something to you from uh, the New American Commentary. It says, verse 11 takes an unexpected turn. 
The angel now calls on all who do wrong to continue doing wrong. By the same token, those who are accustomed to vile behavior are followed, are, are allowed to continue in that vile behavior. The word for vile, with its accompanying verb, has the tense of soil, make dirty, or defile. The disregard of impure persons because of the holiness of God soon establishes a permanent state. By the same token, those who exercise righteousness and, and who seek after holiness will find that eventually those aspirations are solidified and made permanent. Yeah, the, the idea is whatever state you are in when this time comes, that is the state that you will always be in. You know, if, if for, there's no second chances in hell, as I just said. You know, if, if you were vile, if you were a, a, a sinner, if that's your bent, if that's your desire, when this point comes, the decisions have all been made, and that is what you will be. If, if, if you love the Lord, if you gave your life to the Lord, if you were truly his, when this point comes, that is what you will be. You will be God's people. There's no turning back at that point. There's, you know, uh, uh, Mike Salona gave me a, a, an interesting thing from Tony Evans, who that's kind of the position he takes, and he talks about how, you know, there's no improvement in hell. You know, people don't get better in hell. They don't learn the lesson. You know, it's not a, a, a self-improvement place. That's not how it works. You know, he goes on, uh, one of the famous commentaries on, on Revelation was written by uh, G.K. Beale, and he says, Beale connects this difficult passage to Daniel 12 and offers some assistance in comprehension of the text. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a quote here from, from Beale in, in a second, but Daniel 12, uh, it, it's the last chapter of Daniel, and Daniel is told to, to seal up the prophecy that he's been given until the right time for it to be opened up. You know, it, 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 essentially because people won't, you know, people won't th th grasp it, you know. And, and uh, so he, he makes that connection here. Let me read Beale's quote. How does the Daniel allusion contribute to the theological background of dual exhortations in, in Revelation 20 to 11? The Daniel text predicts that during the latter days, false members of the covenant community will not understand the dawning fulfillment of prophecy. And, and, so, and consequently, will, will continue to disobey God's laws, whereas the godly will have insight and discern the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy, prophecy occurring um, around them. They will respond by obeying God's word. The change from prediction in Daniel to imperatives in Revelation 20 to 11 expresses awareness that Daniel's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled in John's own time and that genuine believers should discern this revelation and respond positively to it. In other words, false believers, people who claim the name of Christ but really don't, haven't put their faith in Christ, they, they won't understand because there's no real spiritual life, so they won't discern spiritual truth. But God's true people will discern the true spiritual truth of what they see and what they hear. And, and, and so Beale kind of takes that as, as where this is kind of heading, that you know, God's saying, don't seal up the word of this prophecy, which is just the opposite of Daniel. In other words, it's the time for people to start understanding this but the only ones that will really understand it will be the ones that, who really have a heart for God. The true will be true. The false will be false. And they'll continue to be false. So that's kind of the position that, that Beale takes. All right, let's uh, look at verses 12 through 15. <coughs> it says, look, I am coming soon my reward is with me, and I, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So here we see another, uh, another imperative by God saying, I am coming soon. In God's timing, this is soon. Ours, again, is different. We're on a different time scale than God. But in his, in his eyes, he is coming, coming soon, and, and he is bringing judgment. He will give to each what they deserve, which really kind of, you know, 
fits with what we just read in, in verse 11, that people are essentially going to be judged on, 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 on the reality of, of, of who they are. Have they put their faith in Christ or haven't they? You know? In, in verse 13, he's, he, you know, he's, again, we see the stress on, on, on the sovereignty of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the true God. This is the eternal one who's making this statement. You can trust in this, and he will do this. He will follow through on this. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and, and may go through the gates of the city. Again, that, that, that stress, how, how does one wash their robes? In the blood of the lamb. You know, remember the old song? Washing, are you washing the blood and the blood of the lamb? You know, th- that's essentially the idea that, that you know, uh, the robes of God's people have been washed by his blood and now they are pure white. And as he said many times through this, they will be the ones that will exist in, in, in God's eternal order. They will be the ones who are able to enter in and out of the, uh, of, of the new Jerusalem and be in the presence of God. However, any who have not done that, look at verse 15, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone whose love and practice who loves and practices falsehood. Again, it's that idea that all who put their faith in Christ are washed clean and they will go into God's eternal rest. They will go into the, to the eternal city. But all those who have not, who here he calls dogs, all of those who are not, all of those who have reveled in their sin and never put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be excluded from the presence of God eternally. That is the cost of not putting your faith in Christ. Eternal exclusion from God. It, it, you know, it, it is a hard thing, but it is also a just thing. We'll see here in a second that God continues, in fact, he stresses you know, that he gives, gives you know, them the opportunity to make a choice. In verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. You know, we see again that, that, that another attestation by God. This is several times that we've seen here. This message is coming from God. You know, here we see Jesus speaking to John, saying, I'm the one who's giving you this message, John. And this is who I am. I, I, I am am the root and the offspring of David. David came from me, and then as I took my life on the, on the earth, I came from David's line. You know, I, I am the creator of God. I created the people of Israel. I made the covenants. David came from me, and then I became a human being and, and, and at the incarnation, and I came through the root of, da- uh, you know, the tree of David, the family line of David. And I'm the bright morning star, that idea uh, of, of kind of like the morning star that, you know, that, that beautiful kind of bright last star you see right before daylight comes. And that's the idea of a new day, new life, new beginning. God saying, I'm the, I'm the, the new star, I will bring new life. Verse 17, he said, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit of God in the church, the bride, come. Let the one who says, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Here again, we see like kind of like one last plea from God. Come. Make the right choice. I, I give free access to the water of life. You have to put your faith in me. Put your faith in me. To the unbeliever, as we said earlier, the words of this prophecy are meant to be a conviction to come to Christ. Because if you don't, it's eternal separation from him. No questions right now. We're, out of, we're just about out of time. Look at verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of the prophecy of this scroll... If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. 
If anyone takes the words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. I do not have the time this morning to go into all the, the different ideas of what this means. But essentially, some think that this is dealing with translation, like early translation work. Uh, that the you know it, translation was very hard, and this was a essentially a warning to those who would be doing translation. Look, make sure you get this right. Don't be don't like being don't don't make decisions where oh that doesn't make any sense to me, or I don't believe that, so I'm going to change it. Okay. As God says, if you do that, you're going to be cursed. Others don't quite take that position. They, they look at it more that, that you know, this, this is, again, talking to people who really have no heart for God. It's basically, again, another warning to people. Look, if, if you hear this and you just try to poo-poo it away or you try to alter it somehow, it really reveals who you really are. Do you really have a heart for God or not? You're either going to listen to this prophecy, and if you are, you will get the benefits of it, or you're going to say, oh, no, I don't believe that. I'm going to, out here, that, this is what this actually means. You try to just get rid of it. And if all you're doing is trying to get rid of it, you're going to face the curses of it. Because that just means you are one of the people who's, who does not have a heart for God, and you essentially are going to reject his son. I think that's probably the better meaning of the passage myself. You know, and that's, that's the position that most seem to take. And finally, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Again, notice that, that that is Jesus again saying, yes, I am coming soon. He's the one who testifies. Again, it's yet another example in these closing verses where Christ says, I'm the one giving you this prophecy. I'm the one that will fulfill it. Soon my time will come and I will come. And then you notice the reaction. It says, amen, come Lord Jesus. That, that Maranatha, uh, you know, our, our Lord come. Uh, you know, that's the response of John and of, of all of God's people. Amen, agreement, God come soon. And then verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. That is the end of the book of Revelation. Thank you, folks. It has been a long and interesting two years. Um, I think it's a beautiful book. I, I, with everything going on with COVID and all the craziness in the world, I think it was the time to do this book. It will probably be yet another 20 or 25 years before I do it again, if I'm even alive at that time. This may be the last time I ever teach the book of Revelation, um, but it, it, is, it has been a rewarding couple of years. It's been interesting for me. Thank you to those of you who stayed with me through all this. Oh, my goodness, you, you, you guys deserve a, an extra crown in heaven, uh, you know, for putting up with me for two years on the same book. Uh, but thank you, and uh, hopefully it's been enjoyable for you, and hopefully we've learned something as, as we've gone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this prophecy, this, uh, this word that has come from you and come from your Son, and and we just put our faith in you. We know that in your timing, Father, whenever it is, is right according to you, you will come soon. Uh, you will bring about these things. And we just need to put our faith in you and put our trust in you and, and just uh, love you and serve you and try to reach others for Christ uh, in the meantime. So, Father, we just pray that you'd bless what we do. We pray that you would be blessed uh, and glorified by what happens here today that we would learn about you and become more like you and lift our voices in praise. And Father, this evening, again, we just ask for your blessing upon our, our time together in our 100th year uh, anniversary banquet. And we are just so thankful, Lord, for, for the, the, the beautiful grace and mercy that you've given to us, the, the, the ability to be a, a, a body of people that, that have stuck true to, to your word and who who've tried to reach others for you for a hundred years. Uh, it's just such an amazing blessing, and we just thank you and praise you for it, Lord. And we just, uh, again, ask you to control it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.